Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Bureau. I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's San Francisco Outpost. It is Thursday, July 25th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. A big change at the top of Vertex Pharmaceuticals was announced this week. Stats' Matt Herper joins us to discuss the biotech giant's new CEO and the legacy of its last one. The first true digital health IPOs are finally happening. We'll talk about what it's all going to mean on Wall Street. An outbreak of the deadly Ebola virus has been ravaging Central Africa for nearly a year, but the epidemic has received scant attention from the media. Stat reporter Helen Branswell joins us to discuss. But first, a word about Stat Plus. Enjoying the Read Out Loud? You can get more exclusive coverage from Adam, Rebecca, Damien, and others at Stat with a Stat Plus subscription. Stat Plus delivers daily, market-moving coverage of biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. By subscribing today, you'll get access to exclusive stories from our award-winning team every day. And as a special thanks to you, our podcast listener, Subscribe to Stat Plus now and enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D. We hope you enjoy Stat Plus, and thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener. Let's start with biotech's biggest news of the week. Jeff Lydon, after seven years in charge of Vertex, will step down next year. And his replacement, the company's current chief medical officer, will become one of the very few women to lead a major drug company. So our stat colleague, Matt Herper, spoke with Leiden ahead of the announcement, and he joins us now to break down all its implications. Matt, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. So Matt, let's start with Leiden. Uh, The Vertex he joined back in 2011 looked very different from the company we see today. What was Leiden's vision for Vertex's future? There were kind of two parts to Leiden's vision. One was that everyone was starting to realize that Vertex's cystic fibrosis drug, which became Kaleidico, was going to be a big deal. And he wanted to focus on that. But he also thought that Kaleidico could serve as a blueprint for what he calls a new kind of drug company. And what he saw as being potentially different is that he thought that you could use the blueprint of Kaleidico to innovate again, to invent new drugs in other rare diseases. So the idea was that the company would pivot from hepatitis C, where its drug was going to be completely displaced by new entrants and move to CF, but then it would broaden out from that. So Vertex is often held up as a sterling example of precision medicine, and that's because the company developed a series of drugs matched to very specific genetic signatures in cystic fibrosis. But Vertex is also held up as a sterling example of why medicine is so very expensive in 2019. Those drugs cost upwards of $200,000 a year, and Vertex has basically gone to war with overseas governments who believe that's too expensive. So which of those characterizations do you think will endure when we think about Leiden's legacy? Well, uh, to some extent, both. And now Vertex's prices are in line with what other ultra-orphan drug companies charge. I tend to think that when there is an innovative drug, that the benefits of the drug eventually seem to overwhelm the controversies about price. I also think that he was a business executive. And if you look at Kaleidico, which is the first drug, that's where you have the most dramatic efficacy and also the smallest population. One of the things that Leiden did was to price the other drugs at almost as much, at least when it comes to list price. And 
that really benefited Vertex and allowed it to make this transition. There are some people who would probably say that that also meant that the company was overpaid for the inarguably great drugs that it invented. So now let's talk about the future of Vertex. Lighten's replacement is Reshma Kelramani, currently the company's chief medical officer. And so, Matt, what do we know about Kelramani? Well, she's been at Vertex for a very short period of time. And one thing I thought was surprising was that Leiden basically said that when she was brought on board a bit more than two years ago, that they were already thinking of her as a potential replacement for him. They were looking for someone who was a doctor and a scientist who understood the business side of the drug industry and could take on that role. So she actually has done a lot in three years at the company. Uh, Leiden gave her a lot of credit for the design of the trials of a new vertex cystic fibrosis drug, which has really dramatic efficacy in 90% of CF patients, a big step up, and also in the seven medicines that the company has put into clinical trials. And talking to her, the message was very much that Vertex is going to be staying on course, that she is someone who's been brought in and now understands the culture, and that Leiden is staying on as executive chairman until... 2023. So the the message they want to send is that although Leiden is stepping aside, there's going to be continuity and that investors should not be worried. So speaking of whether investors should be worried, change, of course, usually means risk. And Wall Street is generally averse to risk. Adam, what has the investor reaction been like to the Leiden news? Yeah, so I've talked to some investors and some analysts this morning after the news broke to kind of gauge reaction. And generally, I think the reaction has been, you know, generally positive with a little bit of concern. I think people are happy that they went internal. They found someone, you know, already inside the company to to become the new CEO. And I think people generally like the idea of having someone who is a medical doctor, who is a scientist leading the company, because that really is kind of the DNA of Vertex. Vertex is very much a science-driven company and always has been. Its CEO has always kind of come from sort of the science medicine field. So that continuity, I think, is something that people are happy about. On the other side, I think people are a little bit worried about Kel Romani's maybe a little bit lack of business uh, Wall Street experience. Some of the investors I spoke with this morning say they don't really know her and that they're going to have to get to know her better now that, you know, once she takes over as CEO. So there'll probably be a little bit of a kind of a transition period and, and you know, kind of to see how she acts, you know, in that sort of finance Wall Street role. Leiden's response to that was that Vertex finally has a good communicator in charge, which I thought was very nice of him to say. And that actually is an interesting comment because when I've spoke to people, I think people generally feel like Jeff Lydon is not a great Wall Street guy. It's not a role that he really likes to take. He's much more comfortable on the science side than it is talking to investors. That's interesting. So even just kind of hearing this description of the near-term future of Vertex, it reminded me of something from recent biotech history at Gilead Sciences, where there was a longtime and well-known CEO who stepped down to become executive chairman and his hand-chosen successor took over as, uh, as CEO in his place. And fast-forwarding, they're already on to another CEO. So I guess my question is, what do we think the next few years of Vertex are going to look like? I think it's a very different case. In the case of Gilead, you had two very prominent executives who had actually been kind of wrestling about direction for a while. And 
they'd always kind of both been there. This is a case of someone being appointed as an heir and coming from internally. And I do think that tends to work better. CEO transitions are always a risk. There's always a risk they won't work out. And one of the benefits here is that with Leiden still there, if something does go wrong, one can assume that Vertex would actually be in a better position than Gilead to change direction. And I think that Keromani comes in as CEO. She's coming into a company that's, I don't want to say reached its peak, but it's sort of on the upswing. Whereas a company like Gilead, like you mentioned, Damien has had a lot of problems. But, you know, looking ahead, you know, I think a lot of people sort of expect that the CF business, the cystic fibrosis business is going to continue to grow. That's kind of a given. And the bigger unknown is how Vertex diversifies out of CF. You know, they have got a bunch of kind of exciting very early stage programs in other diseases. You know, they're getting pretty deep into sort of CRISPR and genome editing, for instance. So, you know, how she maneuvers through that, navigates, and whether those drugs turn out to be successful will really kind of be the way that I think she's judged. Matt, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. There is a lot of excitement about the promise of digital health startups. Now that promise is finally going to get tested in the public markets. Two leading companies in the sector, the diabetes coaching startup Livongo and the hospital data cruncher Health Catalyst, listed on the NASDAQ on Thursday. By the time you listen to this episode, they'll have started trading, so you will have information we don't have, but both priced their shares on Wednesday evening slightly above the range that they had forecasted. These initial public offerings are expected to be a litmus test as more companies consider going public in a sector that has long sustained itself through regular infusions of venture capital dollars. And so all this activity in an emerging industry that is largely unfamiliar with public markets is raising some really interesting questions on Wall Street. So, Rebecca, you have been covering these companies closely. What kind of catalysts will swing these stocks? Right. So it's a really interesting question because we know well what moves a biotech stock, right? That's data readouts or FDA approval decisions. And then on the tech side, you know, social media companies often move on things like user growth. But I think there's a more complicated question about what's going to move the stock of companies with these really intricate business models and really complicated ways of measuring their growth. So take Livongo, which makes money by charging employers and health plans to monitor and coach their employees and members with diabetes or other chronic diseases. So you might expect that stock to move on announcements that they've signed up big employers or, or big health plans. Then there's Health Catalyst, which charges hospitals and health systems to use its tools to analyze their own data. And I think we could also see that stock move on announcements from new health systems that have signed up as customers. Then there's also things like multi-year contracts and, and contracts that have been signed, but that haven't yet been executed, which represent future revenue. These are not things that are, I think, quite as clear cut as a readout or a user growth number on a social media site. So I think it'll be really interesting um, to see what ends up driving these stocks. So kind of on that same topic, drilling down in the nitty gritty of how Wall Street works, sell side analyst research is, is fairly important. And we know the analysts who cover biotech, the ones who have to learn about clinical trials and science, et cetera. And we're familiar with the ones who cover companies like Facebook and Twitter who obsess over user growth and metrics like that. So then who literally will be covering the companies that kind of straddle those two worlds? 
Yeah, this is also a really interesting question. You know, some of the specialty healthcare banks already do have sort of dedicated health tech, health IT analysts. Um, so they're sort of a natural fit to cover the digital health companies that go public. But the big generalist banks, I think, are going to have to think a little more carefully about how they source uh, their analyst coverage here. You know, do they want to place this responsibility and expertise on someone who has a lot of experience in healthcare or maybe someone who has a lot of experience covering technology. So I asked all of the investment banks that were hired to carry out the IPOs for Livongo and Health Catalyst about their plans. They either didn't comment or uh, declined to get back to me. But I do think it'll be interesting as they start to initiate coverage in the coming weeks who they assign. One expert in the field told me that he expects the analysts to be sourced from a pool of those who already focus on a sector kind of known among insiders as healthcare technology and distribution. So there certainly are sort of health IT analysts out there, but this is of course kind of a a new world and next generation of health tech companies uh, that we haven't seen before. On that note, and sort of related, Rebecca, you know, we know that biotech and technology each have their own kind of crowd of investors that that get into these stocks, buy these IPOs. Here we have these digital health startups that kind of straddle both those worlds. So what kind of investors are, are buying these stocks? Yeah, so there's a few kind of pools of investors who might be interested here. There's life sciences investors. So we're talking biotech, medical device investors. Uh, then there's sort of the health services category of investors. And then finally, there's the traditional tech investor, the kind of person who might invest in Salesforce. And I think it's possible that all three might be interested. You know, there isn't sort of a default pool of health tech investors on the public markets that already exist. So it'll be interesting to sort of see these digital health companies cobble together a coalition of investors from different pools. So the phrase digital health is fairly novel, but the concept of health technology is not. And so I'm curious, you know, there's a novelty assigned to the companies we're talking about right now. What makes them different from the yesteryear health tech companies, many of which are already publicly traded? Right. So I think this has kind of taken some people by surprise, all these headlines saying the first health tech companies are going public today because what are you talking about? You know, there are plenty of publicly traded health IT companies. But I think there's a distinction being drawn here that this new generation of startups are sort of very Silicon Valley in their style and their vibe. These are companies that talk about artificial intelligence ad nauseum. They are venture funded, they're very tech savvy and slick. I think it's a very different category compared to what we've seen before, which has been dominated by sort of boring software that's used in the clinic or in hospitals. While these companies, I think, have much higher expectations on their back to drive down costs and and improve health outcomes. I think one way to measure just how high these expectations are for this new generation of digital health companies is a really crazy statistic. So the digital health evangelist Matthew Holt pointed this out on Twitter, which is that Livongo is expected to go out the gate at a higher market capitalization than all scripts. That's the 33-year-old electronic health records vendor, uh, which is valued at $1.8 billion. And that's a crazy bet on, on Livongo's potential because Allscripts brought in more than 13 times as much revenue as Livongo did in the first three months of this year. So, Rebecca, the digital health industry has had a kind of a mixed record when it comes to the public markets. Will this time be different? 
Yeah, so that's the million dollar question, right? Because the track record is not great. One of the big reasons that the sector has been stuck in an IPO drought for quite a long time, by some measures back to before President Trump was elected, is just because people are scared off. It hasn't gone so well for for others in the space. Uh, I often cited cautionary tales out of Castlight Health. This is a company working on bringing transparency to healthcare pricing. And they went public to really high expectations in 2014, but that did not work out well. And so I think people have been scared off by the failures of, of companies in the past. So I think it'll be up to the likes of this new generation of startups to try to turn that narrative around. And I think they have piled up pretty significant losses so far. You know, these are companies that. Uh, are losing money and um, you know don't have kind of the promise of a blockbuster drug on the horizon the way that biotech companies do. So it'll be interesting to see whether they're able to turn this narrative around. There is an outbreak of the deadly Ebola virus currently underway in Central Africa. The first infections were detected nearly one year ago in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And more recently, reports of a few cases surfaced in neighboring Uganda. And the efforts to squelch this Ebola epidemic have so far proved unsuccessful. So today, the so-called North Kivu outbreak is now the second largest on record. Ebola is a terrifying disease. And outbreaks on this scale are usually global news events. But the North Kivu outbreak has been different. It has not garnered nearly as much media attention as the last major Ebola epidemic, which you may recall struck West Africa in 2014, and even brought a handful of infected patients to the United States. Joining us to discuss the current Ebola crisis is our STAT colleague, Helen Branswell. Helen is our resident expert on infectious disease and public health. She has deep experience covering epidemics, including Ebola. Helen, thanks for your time today. Thanks for having me on. So, Helen, for the benefit of our listeners, let's start with some background. When did this most recent Ebola outbreak start? Where is it happening and how large has it grown? Okay, so it's always hard to sort of gauge when an Ebola outbreak starts. Typically what happens is somebody gets infected, somebody around them gets infected, but it percolates at a low level where people don't notice it for a while. And then at a point it will hit a hospital generally and healthcare workers get infected. And that's when it becomes known that there's an Ebola outbreak going on. That point happened in late July of last year and tests were taken. And on August 1st of 2018, the Democratic Republic of the Congo announced that they had an Ebola outbreak underway. It's the 10th the country has had. It's happening in the northeastern part of DRC, right up against the borders of Uganda, South Sudan, and Rwanda, which is one of the reasons why this is so concerning. There's real potential here for the virus essentially to jump over the borders to those countries and start spreading elsewhere. And uh, trying to fight something like Ebola is hard enough when it's in one place. When it's in a number of countries, it becomes a lot more difficult. So, Helen, you wrote a perspective piece today up on STAT about the North Kivu outbreak, and it explores some of the differences with the Ebola epidemic that occurred in 2014, which seemed to be much more widely covered. Tell us about that. Well, that's true. I mean, first of all, the one in 2014 was a lot bigger than this one. At the end of the day, it went for over two years and about 28 thousand people were infected, which is just astronomical off the charts in terms of Ebola. No one actually ever thought you could get an Ebola outbreak that big. 
This one is sort of approaching a tenth of that size, but again, that's really large and a very difficult thing to control. This one isn't getting that much coverage. There aren't a lot of outside reporters who've gone there. I haven't either. I'm writing about it from Boston. It's occurring in a conflict zone. It's a very dangerous place for the people who live there and for the people who have gone into the area to try to control the outbreak. As a consequence, I think that's probably why a lot of outside reporting teams haven't gone in. And as a result, it is just not getting the amount of coverage that you would have expected from an event of this scale. So, Helen, your piece today carries a provocative headline. It says, you know, what if we're no longer afraid of Ebola? And inside the story, you note that hashtag Ebola doesn't seem to trend on Twitter anymore. Should we be worried about that? You know, it's a complicated situation. What I say in the piece is that after the hot zone, Richard Preston's book on Ebola was published in 1994. People got really flipped out about Ebola. And anytime there was an outbreak, you know, there was a lot of concern. One of you mentioned in the 2014 outbreak, there were a few cases in the United States or a few cases in a number of other countries that had sent health workers to help in the response, and none of them took off. And I think what happened is that people realized, oh, you know, maybe Ebola isn't the threat to us that we have always thought it might be. And I, I do wonder if that is sort of having an impact on how much attention and how much funding this is getting. That said, we probably never should have feared Ebola as a threat to us. It's not endemic in North America. We should fear it, but fear it for what it can do in the places where it spreads. So Helen, let's talk about vaccination efforts. This is the first Ebola outbreak where an experimental vaccine from Merck has been used from the very start to fight it. How successful have those efforts been? I think you would have to say a mixed success. They've used up until now more than 170,000 doses of the vaccine, which is just a completely extraordinary thing and a lot of work. And I think there will probably be modeling studies later that show that if they hadn't used that amount of vaccine, that this would be a far, far greater outbreak now than it is. But the approach that they're using is called ring vaccination. They're vaccinating people who've been in contact with cases and then the contacts of those contacts. The, the, the notion is that if you you can block the, the virus from spreading by sort of setting up a wall of immunity around places where it's been and that works. That's how smallpox was eradicated. But it only works if you know where the virus is. And with this outbreak, they've been having an extraordinarily hard time finding all the cases. People in this part of the world don't trust authority and have really gone to ground at times when they've had illness in their families. People have been protecting family members who are sick, refusing to take them to Ebola treatment centers. So often what happens is the first time anyone knows about a case is when the person dies. In circumstances like that where the surveillance isn't terrific and people aren't cooperating with you, it's hard to find the people who need to be vaccinated. And as a consequence, this outbreak is continuing to spread. So as we said at the top of the segment, the North Kivu outbreak has persisted for nearly one year and has started to spread beyond the DRC. This prompted the World Health Organization in a vote last week to declare a global emergency. Helen, what does that mean? 
So the term is public health emergency of international concern or a fake, as it's called. It's a sort of misleading term because it does imply that this is a global emergency and we should all be really worried. In fact, that's not what this is about. This is essentially signaling to governments around the world that they need to start paying more attention. They need to be helping more with the funding. It's saying we have a real big problem on our hands and we need more help. So lastly, Helen, based on your experience in reporting epidemics like this one, what trajectory should we expect here? Do you think the North Kivu Ebola outbreak will end anytime soon? It's interesting that you asked that. I was reading a story just before we started this, quoting the head of the response in the DRC, saying that this could be over by the end of the year. That seems really optimistic, given the case count at the moment and the number of cases that are occurring. In the last few months, every month has had 300, 400 cases, which is a lot of Ebola. And it's really hard to figure out how you go from there to zero very quickly. Another issue that one has to consider, but which is impossible to predict, is that there's been a lot of violence in that region. Anytime there are really violent outbreaks in that part of the country, the Ebola response suffers because uh, the responders have to essentially hunker down. It's not safe for them to be out. You know, if this were a peaceful place, could you get to zero in a few months? Maybe, but it's really very unpredictable and seems, based on the experience up till now, unlikely to be an easy and quick end. Helen, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Hyacinth Epinato, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr and Alyssa Ambrose are our senior producers, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode. Render a verdict on Vertex's new CEO. Does Ebola scare you? You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. We really do appreciate the feedback, so thank you. And if you like what we do, please do leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week. 